0: I'm struck over and over again about who gets to make mistakes in American society. My kids get to make mistakes, but we still just don't cut a break for poor people, especially poor people of color. And that just like hits me over the head over and over again in my reporting.
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Our guest on today's show is Emily Bazelon. Emily is, uh, I'm sure, a familiar voice to many of you. She is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, where she often writes about criminal justice issues. She's also a co-host of Slate's long-running podcast, Political Gab Fest, and she's currently a lecturer and the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School. Emily's newest book is Charged, the New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration. And and it's a book that sheds new light on uh, a lot of issues that we've been talking about on this podcast in recent months, um, particularly with our uh, recent series on the power of prosecutors. Uh, Emily, congratulations on the book and the new podcast. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Oh, I'm so excited to talk with you. This is a great podcast and I'm happy to be part of it.
1: Well, thanks very much. All right, so it's my understanding that this book project sort of began for you a few years ago, and it was really your idea was to focus and and cast light onto this the power the sort of outsized power that uh prosecutors have. But as you worked on the book the the project transformed somewhat, and I, I'm wondering at what point you you realized that you actually had a different story to tell,
0: yeah, so When I look back at my book proposal, which I wrote in 2015, I was really focused on the power of prosecutors, how they'd amassed so much more power than the system is designed for, and how they were almost exclusively in those years, and really I mean like from the 80s until 2015 or 16, how they were really using their power to drive mass incarceration, So my idea was to explain how prosecutors are the missing piece of the mass incarceration puzzle. And that is a really important part of my book and I do tell that story. But in 2016, and I really figured this out um, because of the election that November, a number of cities started to have these social movements bubbling up in which people had figured out that if they elected a new kind of district attorney, they could try to have a significant impact, even a transformative impact on the local criminal justice system. And so that story took me by surprise, but I was really excited to learn about it and write about it because it's important. And also because as a journalist, I'm really interested when things change. So my book ends up telling two stories. One is the traditional story about prosecutorial power, and one is this much more recent shift that we're really just at the beginning of in trying to hold prosecutors accountable to a constituency, often like communities of color and low-income people, who are asking them to reduce mass incarceration and increase the fairness of the system.
1: I, I like this formulation you have of people figuring out the, the kind of power the prosecutors have, because it, it does seem like it was a very sort of galvanizing conclusion for people to reach. So you call, I think it's near the end of the book, you call the progressive prosecutor movement the most promising means of reform I see on the political landscape. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to that conclusion then?
0: When you elect your local DA, that's something that like you do as a local community, It's your city, your county that picks your local DA, the same way you pick your mayor or your county commissioners. And so because it is local, it's easy to have a big effect on. It's thousands of voters who make these crucial decisions, not millions of voters. It's not about fixing Washington, which seems so unattainable, and it's not even about trying to sway your state legislature, which can also be very difficult. And so I see this movement as harnessing the power of prosecutors, which historically has been a bad thing, and trying to make it a good thing in terms of reducing mass incarceration and healing and shrinking this giant system we've created. And if it succeeds, then the sort of next step is, okay. well, these cities and counties could be a model where communities are safe and they're also healthier places. And maybe that will make it both safe and also politically viable for state legislatures or even for Congress to take more steps to dismantle this giant machine of punishment that America has built.
1: Right. Because, I mean, right now it's fair to say that progressive prosecutors are very much in the minority and there is a degree to which it's a sort of urban, rural phenomenon. But it sounds to me like you see this movement as potentially a kind of model for what could work going forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, everything you said is just true. There are more than 2,400 elected prosecutors across the country. Depending on how you count, there are like five to 40 of them who can fairly claim to be progressive. However, they represent some big places, you know, so we're talking about cities with millions of people like Philadelphia and Brooklyn and Boston and Chicago. And so there's this interesting math that's not it's not my finding. It's from um, Carissa Hessek at the University of North Carolina. She figured out that if you had 125 progressive prosecutors in the biggest cities and uh, metro areas in the country, they would actually be the DA for half the population of America. So the 2400 number is really big and hard to crack, but it involves a lot of small rural districts. So if we think of the progressive prosecutor movement as beginning with these big metro areas and then becoming a model, it doesn't take that many elections to really change the picture of American criminal justice, even if it's not a complete national solution.
1: And then when you talk about harnessing the position of of, of the prosecutor and, and I guess using this power for good. I mean, is that what you see as the goal of of the movement, if we can call it a movement, that it it is to use this power previously used in abusive ways, often in in more positive ways? Or or do you also think the goal should be for prosecutors, to um, progressive ones anyway, to actually work to reduce their own power as prosecutors?
0: It's both. But it's easier to ask people to harness their power to do good by holding them accountable to a different constituency. Like, you can start there. And then you can imagine this next step of prosecutors giving up some of their power. For example, a big thing is changing how they charge people. Like if you don't try to jack up people on the maximum possible charges in order to induce a plea bargain, well, that gives up some power right there. But there is sort of a second question, which is whether we should change the laws that allow prosecutors to jack up the charges in the first place. And I'm talking now in particular about mandatory sentencing laws, which really give huge power to prosecutors because they bake in punishment to the decisions prosecutors make at charging. So I think a later step is to change those laws. And and another kind of feature of this progressive prosecutors movement is to try to create an alternative lobbying force among district attorneys and state's attorneys. So right now in the country, every state has a state DA's association. There's also a national one. They uniformly take hard-line, tough-on-crime stances, on legislation, on policies. That's their reason to exist in the world. If you start having progressive prosecutors who are saying, hey, wait a minute, we have the same job as you, we have the same credibility, and we think that's a mistake, that's another way to shake up this political dynamic.
1: Well, how much appetite do you think there is out there among progressive prosecutors, again, to the extent to which we can speak of them as a group, but how much appetite do you think there there is for actually, you know, reducing their power um, in this next step way that you're talking about? I mean, when Larry Krasner talks about being the the pirate who's taking over the ship, that doesn't exactly sound like he's (laughs) interested in putting guardrails around his power necessarily.
0: but Larry Krasner is interested in reducing charges and has said to his assistant prosecutors in nonviolent cases, for the most part, at least, you should start with charges at the bottom of the Pennsylvania sentencing guidelines instead of at the top. So that is an example of. Krasner, you know, using his office to harness his power. And he also quit the Pennsylvania District Attorneys Association because he didn't like the positions they were taking. He took with him a third of the budget for that state association. So, you know, that's a pretty um, strong move toward changing the way the prosecutors lobby.
1: But I, I guess the concern is, though, that if we don't go to the step two of kind of really putting it in writing, and maybe that's a state legislature job to do that if somebody who comes after, say, a Larry Krasner or a Kim Fox, could just unilaterally roll back the policies, right?
0: Oh, yeah, you're completely right. I mean, when you rely on the identity of the individual elected official, you leave in place the same systemic vulnerabilities and weaknesses that were there before, and the next person can change their mind. So, again, I think that the, for me, the question is, will these folks get reelected? You know, historically, it's been very easy for DA incumbents to keep winning elections. So is that going to be the case also for these progressive DAs? Um, and then the second question is like, OK, well, it's certainly true this is no perfect permanent fix. But is it? the best chance for moving the needle? Can it create the kind of models that could lead to the more systemic changes you're talking about? And this isn't my call to make. I'm a reporter, you know, not an activist, not a policymaker. And so what I do is I pay attention to the people on the ground who are working really hard on this issue. And when I see them putting a lot of energy into these elections, I figure like that's something I should respect and that's work that I should pay attention to.
1: Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, I mean, mean, just picking up on the voters question, though, I mean, the book ends with a call for voters to use their power to fix the criminal justice system. And, And obviously, it's been great to see that happening in, you know, many large cities across the country. But does it concern you at all? I mean, it's the kind of Rachel Barco question. Uh, you know, the author of *Prisoner of Politics*. That there's a we're putting maybe too much faith in voters to change the system, and that how voters respond to things can really be subject to, say, whether crime rates go up and down, for example.
0: So I'm a big fan of Rachel's um, and of her book. And yes, the concern that political change is very subject to crime rates going up and down, like that, is a concern. I don't really see a better alternative, though. I mean, calling for things like sentencing commissions and other technocratic fixes could work, but it's just not worked in modern American history, right? You really have to look toward Europe and, like, a couple of examples from the States to see good examples for what Rachel is calling for. Most of the time when we create things like sentencing commissions and parole boards and other sort of technocratic middlemen in the American criminal justice system, they move toward harsher punishment. That is absolutely the story, for example, of the federal sentencing guidelines. They were supposed to make things more consistent and make punishment more even-handed and more fair. And instead, everyone just got sentenced to more time in prison. So I'm skeptical of that kind of fix.
1: And I I really take your point about the progressive prosecutors and their districts you know, serving as models of the road forward. And obviously, to do that, we're going to have to be able to show that those models are, are working. Do you have a, a sense right now of what is being accomplished by progressive prosecutors?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you're starting to see jail populations go down in cities like St. Louis and Philadelphia and places like Brooklyn. I think you're starting to see more of a turn toward drug treatment and diversion programs more generally, like efforts to give people social services and divert them from prison. These local jurisdictions are going to have to try a lot of things, right? This is where the sort of laboratory of democracy comes in. If this succeeds, it spreads because you try something in one place and people show that it's effective. And what I mean by that is safety. You're keeping the community safe. You're respecting victims, treating them like they matter. And you're also trying to heal some of the harm of putting so many people behind bars. If some of these cities and counties can do that, then I think there is this chance for this kind of um, policy making to spread. And, you know, one analogy I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I wonder what you think about this, is the movement for marriage equality. So when it started, it seemed out of sync with American public opinion of how we'd been doing this forever. Like we'd only had men marrying women and vice versa. And like that was just the way it had to be. But then people started talking about it differently, framing it in terms of equality and fairness, and it turned out that public opinion shifted really rapidly, and then the politicians and the courts had to kind of hurry to catch up. I think you can see something similar happening when you look at public opinion polls right now. You know, 60% of people who respond say that they're more likely to support a candidate who's interested in reducing the number of people behind bars. And that's like a big shift. And and, and it makes me think that it's possible for politicians to take more chances and take more risks than they used to do before. It is also true that this is a window of opportunity while crime is low, but I think there is room... But winter is coming, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, I think... That creates a sense of urgency that you need to try some of these things and change the narrative about safety while you have a good chance.
1: So I guess as part of that, you know, ground shifting that we're talking about and the way people talk about criminal justice, a big part of that is that the position of the prosecutor has moved from being sort of invisible and not really talked about to now being almost um, ubiquitous and, and this label of, you know, getting to call yourself a progressive prosecutor is, is now really sought after, right? We've, we've seen it crop up in the Democratic primaries right now. So I, I guess I'm asking you now to also put on your hat of respected political commentator and, and, and talk a little bit about, it. do you think there is leverage in the progressive prosecutor movement right now, given the fact that, that so many people now seem to be kind of fighting to get that label?
0: I think there's interesting tension because you want the label to really mean something and not to be diluted by everybody claiming it without really doing anything to live up to it. So I think those are like healthy tensions within any kind of social movement and um, moment of political change. I also think it's important not to overestimate how much attention this is getting. Um, I mean, I was just really struck This is from 2017, but when I was working on my book, the ACLU did a survey in which, you know, they had a polling firm ask people, do you elect your local DA? And only half of the people who responded knew they had the power to elect their local prosecutor. That's actually the case in almost every state. And so I think just spreading the word, hey, voters, this is a person you pick, just like you pick the mayor. That's actually still a really important message to get out there. And honestly, if all my book does is help that number rise, that would make me happy.
1: Are there for you some sort of key metrics for judging whether a a prosecutor is really progressive?
0: Yeah, so this is a really crucial question that I think the social movement is still figuring out. And so to a certain degree, I defer to the folks on the ground. Overarching, though, I think the crucial question is whether people show that they are shrinking the size of the whole system. We have five times as many people in jail and prison as we did in the 70s. We have more than any other country. It's not necessary for deterrence. Are you really making that number fall in addition to all the people who are, you know, being supervised on parole and probation, which is over 4 million people in the country? And those people get cycled back into jail for what are called technical violations of parole and probation, which are things like staying out too late or leaving the state without permission, like not crimes. So I think you have to show that you are changing those numbers. I think another really important metric is um, racial disparity, because we have this system that at every juncture, black and brown people get punished more harshly for the same kinds of behavior as white people. And you have to be, I think, showing that you're tackling that head on.
1: Right. And and so often we see that even as the sort of base rates uh, shrink and the number of people in the system is going down, that those racial disparities really remain locked in place and sometimes even harden.
0: Yeah, and I mean, this is something I saw in my reporting in Brooklyn. So to give an example, in 2014, the DA at the time, who was the first African-American DA in Brooklyn, he said, okay, we're going to stop prosecuting most marijuana low-level possession cases, so the police were mad. They didn't like this idea. And what ended up happening was that people were no longer getting charged for like having a little bit of weed on them. But the number of arrests went up for smoking in public. And the DA's office was still charging people who had a criminal record for marijuana, even though that doesn't necessarily follow one from the next. So you had real racial disparity in the remaining marijuana charging in Brooklyn. And WNYC did a really good investigation showing this. And then Eric Gonzalez, who is the current DA, said, you know what, I really need to deal with this. And I asked him about this a few weeks ago, and he said that those numbers were coming down. That seems like an important way in which you have to make sure that you haven't accidentally increased the racist um, problems in the system.
1: So if the goal of progressive prosecutors is, I mean, the overarching one, I think you're saying, should be to, to shrink the system. You, you did some reporting on the different ways progressive prosecutors are approaching this challenge. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about these two I don't know if we want to call them opposing, but two different models for change you identified. One in the, the Brooklyn DA's office, um, the Brooklyn DA you just mentioned, Eric Gonzalez, where I think he did some really deep reporting and, and continue to do for your podcast. And then the other being Larry Krasner, the kind of hard-charging district attorney of Philadelphia. So could you talk a little bit about their, their two approaches and, and what sense you have of what success they're each having at implementing their policies and, and changing the culture of their offices?
0: So I think that if you ask Krasner and Gonzalez, they share a lot of the same goals, but they're very different stylistically. Gonzalez is a career prosecutor. He is like an accidental DA and an accidental politician. He was like raised up through the ranks by Ken Thompson, who we were just talking about when Thompson got elected. And then Thompson unexpectedly died of cancer in the middle of his term. And that's how Eric became the DA. So what you see with Gonzalez is this willingness to work within the system and to think that his his lawyers, the prosecutors who work for him, are down with his program. So he did a survey when he came into office and he asked these hundreds of assistant prosecutors, do you share my progressive vision? And most of them said yes. And so he didn't fire a lot of people. He likes to do things with lots of internal buy in. You don't see him having big fights with Brooklyn judges, for example. He signed on to close the Rikers campaign early on, which really helped that campaign join momentum. But he didn't make like a big public announcement. He did it kind of quietly and behind the scenes, which is like a very Eric Gonzalez type move. He has been willing to take on the NYPD, the police department in New York to some degree. But again, he doesn't like hold press conferences and denounce them. That's just like not his way. Larry Krasner, on the other hand, much more aggressive, rhetorically is the person who has been the most willing to challenge the system, has done some really interesting things. Like, for example, he told his prosecutors that when they ask for prison time, he wants them to tell the court how much money that is going to cost as a way of making people think about how we use our resources And he also called, as we were talking about before, for a kind of lowering of charges across the board in a lot of cases in a way that changes the balance of power. You know, what you see with Krasner is more pushback from other parts of the system in Philadelphia. There are judges who are mad at him. The cops really don't like him. Probation and parole aren't really cooperating. I don't think that's because Krasner is wrong in his approach. I think it has to do with the system he inherited. Philadelphia was a much more broken criminal justice system than Brooklyn was when these two different people got elected. So part of this is just like, what's the context you're operating in?
1: I mean, do you think it's fair to say that to be a good progressive prosecutor, given this challenge of of changing office culture and having hundreds of people working for you, that to be a good one, you have to not only have good policies, but you also have to be an effective manager?
0: I do think that's true. I think that can mean different things in different places, but I do think that's true. And I think one challenge for a lot of these new DAs is they have not necessarily been trained in management. Like, that's not what they were doing before. I should say, because I always want to disclose this, that my younger sister, Dana, works for Larry Krasner as a policy advisor. So that's part of my window into that office.
1: And then I, I wanted to talk a little bit about diversion and it's something that we here at the center do a a lot of, which is routing people out of the criminal justice system or routing them out of incarceration and into community-based alternatives. And this idea of diversion is at the heart of one of the two narratives That you tell in uh, in in charged, and this is a a young man to whom you give the name Kevin in Brownsville, Brooklyn, who ends up in a diversion program. And I'm I'm just wondering if you could tell the story of Kevin a, a a little bit, his experience with the diversion program, and then I mean I was really struck by in a sense how onerous his. Diversion program turned out to be, even though it sounds like it was a, a mostly positive experience for him. But could you talk a bit about what you learned about what you think makes a, a, a good diversion program, and 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 what makes a when what makes a bad one? I suppose
0: that's a great question. Um, you your center is doing really important work in this area, and I really feel like I want to hear what you all think about that too, and have learned from your experience. But let's talk a little bit about the program that Kevin went through. So it's called Youth and Community in Partnership. It's run out of the Brooklyn DA's office, which is super unusual. And it's also for people who are charged with serious violent felonies, which is also really unusual.
1: Um, in this instance, it's, um, as you point out, it's, it's a violent felony in name, but in fact, there, there was no actual violence in the crime that Kevin is charged with.
0: Yes. Gun possession, you don't actually hurt someone. It's a crime of possession. But New York treats it as a violent felony. And there are people in YCP, there were more in the past, but there are still people who also have things like burglary charges. Again, treated as a violent felony sometimes, even though you don't necessarily hurt someone. So we're talking about a group of young people who most prosecutors, most judges, most programs don't want to touch, not because they're like scary bad people. I mean, they're really I yeah, that was not my feeling after having spent time with dozens of them. But because if they are out and about and they hurt someone, everyone is going to turn on the program and blame it. There's like a famous case of this in New York of a man who had a really long rap sheet and committed armed robbery and been accused in a shooting. But then he was out on drug treatment and he killed a cop. And everyone gets really nervous about things like that, repeating themselves. The power of the bad headline is, can be a real problem for diversion programs, even though that's not a very rational way to make policy based on one terrible tragedy. In any case... YCP, this diversion program in Brooklyn, is run by, or or I should say it's staffed by social workers, and I think that's crucial. It doesn't have a kind of probation officer mentality. It's trying to meet people where they are when they come in the door in terms of what they're thinking about, what kinds of skills they have, and then it tries to help them make their lives better. So. You have to have a job or be working towards your education. That's the basic goal. And then it imposes some structure in the form of a curfew. There has been random drug testing, which we can talk about whether that's really necessary since these people aren't charged with drug offenses and there's no evidence that they are drug addicts, but that's part of it. So you have this kind of combination of carrots and sticks. And another feature of this program is to get into it, you have to plead guilty. And so you're in it for a year, and you have this prison time that hangs over you. Um, In my book, Kevin had two years of prison he was going to face if he screwed up in the program. In the podcast I'm working on, which has another defendant in it named Tarari, He pled guilty to 15 years, which just seems like an astronomical sentence for possession of a gun with no evidence that he had done anything to threaten or hurt anyone. But that was the situation. So I would say this is an interesting model that does help some people. I have mixed feelings about it operating out of the DA's office because it's sort of weird to have social workers effectively working for prosecutors with their priorities. And another feature of the program that I found really troubling is that So the deal is if you complete the program successfully, you not only don't go to prison, but you actually have your record expunged. This conviction is gone and the record is sealed. But it turns out that does not mean that the cops can't see what you were accused of. And I found a lot of evidence that the police were targeting people who'd been in the program, not necessarily because they hated the program, though actually that may be part of it, but also just because they were just being treated as scary people with guns, even though they had successfully gone through this year of social work and diversion and so I found that really troubling just in terms of how we think about young people and giving them a chance to start over and and really like have mercy operate in a meaningful way in their lives. I mean, I just, it, you know, I'm like a white mom and I have teenage sons and I watch so many young black kids in Brooklyn just get treated as suspicious by the cops and heard their stories in this way that I just felt like would never be true for my sons and it just every time it gets to me
1: yeah i I mean it it got to me too frankly i i kind of teared up at the part of the book where where you report that kevin after completing the diversion program and getting through all the hoops um he posted on social media a kind of headline i am no longer state property Um, and you just think about how much he had to do to get to that point and as you say one of the things he had to do was manage to go i guess a, a year or two as a young black man in brownsville and not get arrested by the police.
0: Yes, that's right. And yet at the end of the book he said, I will I don't want to give it all away but like the police are still after him and it's been true for Terrari on my podcast too and I just there is like a disconnect there. If we really mean that we are going to invest in young people and let them start over, we need to let them truly start over, just like everybody else.
1: So uh, uh, where do you think the line might be, you know, the difference between a kind of, you know, reasonable diversion program and, and, and then when it bleeds over into a kind of excessive control?
0: Well, I think it's really important not to start with a harsher punishment than you need. And I'm talking about prison and jail. I'm also talking about things like ankle monitors, which for the young people I was following were really dehumanizing and upsetting for the most part. So it's one thing if someone is breaking the rules to say like, we're going to put this monitor on you for a a few days or a week because we want to track you, but then we're going to let you earn your way off. It's another thing to start off with that level of Suspicion and dehumanization. I think that's a real mistake and an example of exactly the kind of net widening you're talking about. There are a lot of people in the criminal justice system who just shouldn't be there. But then there are also people who need help. And look, ideally in America, the way that you would get that help would not be after you get arrested, it would come much earlier, it would not be tied in any way to the court system. But it, since we do have this huge net in which we're catching people, at least we can use it to try to make some people's lives better. Although, again, we should always be cognizant of making sure that we're not just trapping more people.
1: And then you you cite at the end, of, near the end of the book, you cite the Stanford Law Professor David Sklansky. He concludes that prosecutors have been allowed to um, uh, operate as something of a black box because we don't really know what we want from the justice system. You know, at the end of of this process and this ongoing podcast production you're involved in, do you feel any closer to knowing, you know, either what what we want, the collective we from the justice system, or, or what you would want from the justice system?
0: Well, I always am afraid to speak beyond myself. But I do think when you look at these poll numbers and you talk to victims also,
1: um,
0: which is so important, people want some sense that the law is operating in a legitimate, fair way, right? There is this legal system. They get why it does the things they do. They want to help the cops solve crimes because they trust the system to make their lives better. I think that is really missing in a lot of places in America right now. There's just this sense of the opposite, that – this system is, is operating arbitrarily and unfairly. And so I think shifting that is the crucial move. And I guess the other thing I'll say, and this is a little more like conceptual maybe is I'm struck over and over again about who gets to make mistakes in American society. My kids get to make mistakes. Nobody has caught them with a gun, but like if they were speeding really fast down the highway, they would not wind up in jail. I just, really doubt it. And I feel like people like Kevin have just much less room to make mistakes, even though we know that teenagers don't have the same kind of impulse control on average as adults do, right? Like we have all this research about the adolescent brain. We know that, you know, those kinds of propensities can persist into being in your mid twenties, but we still just don't cut a break for poor people, especially poor people of color. And that just like hits me over the head over and over again in my reporting.
1: I, I, I exist myself in a, in a bit of a criminal justice reform uh, bubble, so it can be hard sometimes to gauge what's what's really going on in the in the in the broader conversation. But it does seem like, speaking of what do people want from the justice system, that there's just a a really renewed attention on this on restorative justice, you know, as a different kind of approach. Do you have that sense that it is something that is really um, growing and, and offers real solutions?
0: I think so. And I hope so. I mean, there is such a hunger for victims to be better treated and better served. Every survey of victims, you ask them how they feel about their experience and they tell you that they felt betrayed and disappointed and like shunted aside and ignored. And I don't think victims should control criminal prosecutions. But I think offering a real opportunity for like reckoning and apology and restitution in some cases those things that restorative justice offer where like you bring people who've done harm and people who've been harmed you bring them together and like you get them to really process what's happened and try to come up with some mutual solution i mean that is something that should really expand in our system and we've barely scratched the surface of the potential there
1: and then you've, you've done reporting for this book, you're ongoing reporting for the podcast, I think. Could you talk a, a little bit about the challenge of being a white woman with a white child, as you say? You're telling the stories of people who have been harmed by a justice system, and those people are almost you know, uniformly n- non-white, and as the person telling the story, you, you are not someone who suffers the harms directly, usually, of that system. So do you want to talk a bit about how you have navigated that challenge?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's like just a crucial challenge to recognize and take seriously and think hard about. The big mistake is to pretend that it doesn't matter, cuz like it totally matters. And I ran up against the limits of my like white mom journalist self in trying to like spend time with Kevin and people like him in places like Brownsville, you know, why should some 20 year old kid in Brownsville who has a really different life want me to be hanging around with him? Like (laughs) that can be a hard sell. And I get that. And I just try to be like frank and honest about it. So one other thing about the podcast, which is a companion to the book and is also called Charged um, and is out from sleep the podcast lets people really speak for themselves. Like You can hear their voices. I mean, I hope that people feel like I accurately told their stories in my book, but there is an intimacy to hearing people's voices that that kind of audio journalism allows for, which I find really helpful for navigating these issues of race and class. I do try to make sure that I work with people of color, whether it's um, for my podcast, my producers, or, you know, I have friends who I trust who are journalists or just like people in the world who read all my work, who think, help me think through these issues. So I try to make sure I'm touching base with people who are closer to the lived experience of my subjects than I am. And I also acknowledge that I'm going to make mistakes. Like that is how it goes when you're out there trying to report things. And I just try to... When someone points out a mistake, I try to be as honest about it and figure out how to improve what I'm doing as opposed to responding defensively.
1: Well, I'll just add my voice to the chorus And of people saying that I I think you're doing a really tremendous job of of navigating precisely those challenges. And I I think the book is really a a great contribution to the debate. And I'm I'm looking forward to hearing more episodes of the podcast. And thank you so much for uh, making the time to join us today.
0: Oh, totally,
1: my pleasure. Well, thanks very much. Um, I've been speaking with Emily Bazelon. Emily is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine, the Truman Capote Fellow at Yale Law School, and the author of the new book *Charged: The New Movement to Transform American Prosecution and End Mass Incarceration*. For more information on uh, Emily's work and this episode, visit our website, courtinnovation.org/newthinking. And um, for more insights into a lot of the issues that we've talked about uh, on this episode, um, scroll back in your New Thinking feed a little bit and check out our earlier series on the power of prosecutors. For their help with this episode, um, I want to send special thanks to Aaron Richards, Rachel Barco, Somil Trevetti, and Miriam Krinsky. This show is produced and edited by me. You can find me on Twitter at Didactic Matt. Technical support is provided by the ineluctable Bill Harkins. Samiha Miha is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our Vice President of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at quivernyc.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.